0: I'm Dan Malthrop, I'm the Chief Executive of the City Club. Um, We're so excited to have all of you here. This question that we're talking about tonight, like what's up, is essentially what's up with the debt. It is now over 22 trillion dollars. 20 years ago, it was a quarter of that, 25%. Um, It was about a little, somewhere between five and six trillion. So, this is a really difficult question and a difficult concept to wrap your head around, but the more important question is sort of why does it matter, and what is the impact of this kind of debt? We tend to see it as just a uh, a, a symptom of our political dysfunction, um, but in reality, it has greater impacts, and that's what we're here to talk about tonight. Paul Stebbins is with the campaign to fix the debt. Also, uh, another organization that's related called Fix US or Fix Us, um, and uh, he's been with that organization for quite a while. He has a long career in business, and now he's dedicated his life these days to uh, going wherever the conversation takes him and wherever he's invited to talk about these issues. He'll be interviewed tonight uh, by Youngstown State University's Chair of Economics, Dr. Oh Hu, Um, and uh, perfect, really? No way. Um, Anyway, so I'm gonna turn it over to Dr. Hu right now, and uh, after about 30 minutes of their conversation, we'll welcome questions from all of you. Each of you get to ask a question. In fact, so prepare yourselves for that. All right. Thank you so much. Let's get started. Give them a round of applause. By the way, make it sound loud. Woo! Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Um, first, let me introduce myself. Uh, I'm Oh Hu, professor of economics at Youngstown State University. Uh, it's an honor and a pleasure to have the opportunity of asking our distinguished guest, Mr. Paul Stebbins, a few questions for this evening's forum. Um, Among many titles, Mr. Stebbins has served as chairman emeritus of a Fortune 100 company, World Fuel Services, since May 2014, and has led the growth of the company over 20 years Mr. Stebbins is also a member of the leadership council of the committee for a responsible federal budget's Fix the Debt campaign, and serves on the Energy Security Leadership Council of SAFE, that is securing Americans' future energy. Um, So let me first uh, state the objective of tonight's forum. With the U.S. national debt amounting close to $23 trillion, it has become one of the most discussed topics in politics, in Wall Street, and in the Main Street. Our objective was our time this evening is to pick the brain of Mr. Stevens on how to fix the debt and with his help to shed some light on what could affect national debt path going forward? So here's my first question. I I found it personally so refreshing realizing that the Fix the Debt campaign was initiated in the business domain. Mm -hmm. A group of CEOs getting together and trying to uh, tackle the national debt problem. Because fixing the debt could mean higher corporate tax rates and removal of tax exemptions. Mm-hmm. So what motivated, uh, what motivated uh, business leaders um, to launch this fixed debt campaign? Sure,
2: I, you know, as a member of something called the Business Roundtable, which is uh, represented by some of the Americans' Fortune 100 companies, there had been a lot of discussion about what our duty of care was to society. And I think that uh, one of the things that catalyzed the interest around this issue was there was a guy named Dave Cody. Dave Cody was the chairman and CEO of Honeywell at that time, and he was on the so-called Simpson-Bowles Commission. And this was the Commission on Fiscal Responsibility that President Obama had commissioned when he first came into office and was working on two major projects. One was health care, and the other was the national debt. So Alan Simpson, former senator from uh, Wyoming, and Erskine Bowles, who was the former chief of staff under Bill Clinton, had set up this commission. On that commission, Dave Cody, as a business representative, came back to the business roundtable and did a closed-door briefing in which he said, Look, we all come into these meetings. We fly in on the airplanes. We have our meetings with the president and all these senators, and we talk about it. But we're not really leading on this issue. This debt issue is a serious threat to the future of the country. And it speaks to all aspects of society. And it speaks to sort of a pathology of short-termism that seems to have infected not only the communities at large in our our political world, but also our business world. So we're all thinking in quarterly returns. We're all coming in short-term. But we're not taking a long-term look at this issue. So we have a duty of care to take a leadership role. Now, that, that's an unusual conversation at the Business Roundtable, I can tell you. Most people are flying in, they do their meetings, they get out, and they're on the plane to Hong Kong or Japan or whatever, and that was it. So a few of us got involved, and a woman named Maya McGinnis, who runs the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget, began to coalesce an organization around those CEOs. And we ended up with a coalition of over 180 CEOs that became involved. And to your point, mm-hmm. yes, in fact, it meant that there would be uh, higher effective tax rates, but I can tell you how interesting this got. The board of directors of GE, when Jeff Immelt was running it, Sam Nunn, former senator from Georgia, was on that board. And he told me that they had a board meeting that basically discussed to give Jeff backup, to actually give him public backup with the shareholders by saying, we think it's the right thing to do to move the effective tax rate of GE on a global basis from 13 into the 20s as part of this comprehensive solution. Because if we're not doing our part, how can we ask citizens in this country to do their part? So it was kind of a moment of come-to-reality for the business community and also the business community. They all had their K Street offices that were busy spending years and tons of money reducing their effective tax rates. But was that really in the interest of the United States? So the Simpson-Bowles plan was all about combining not only the, uh, broadening the revenue base by lowering rates, but get, getting rid of exemptions. So the big issue for the corporate world was we're going to get rid of all your exemptions. And whether it was Randall Stevens at AT&T or Paul Stebbins at World Fuel or Honeywell, we all went public and said, you can take all of our exemptions away, just fix the problem. Just fix the problem. So we felt like we had to go first. We had to lead. We had to demonstrate some leadership. Mm-hmm. And now I can tell you there were many of our K Street offices that were not happy about that. Yeah. But that, the point was the issue was, was at a crisis. We really needed to address it. Thank you. So that's what started the effort of the business community.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, since its inception, so what have been the major challenges and achievements?
2: Uh, well, we I achieved think. very little. <laughs> <laughs> so we brought together 180 CEOs, and we spent a lot of time and effort trying to catalyze national effort. The Fix the De- uh, Debt campaign uh, ended up signing up close to 400,000 members with 35 state organizations around the country to educate the public about the crisis that we faced. And the problem with the debt is, as uh, as you know, Erskine Bowles used to say, everybody sort of says, "Well, how do I see it? You know, how does it affect me today? How do I know that this theoretical twenty-two trillion back then it was only ten or twelve trillion, but how does it really affect me, and why should I care?" Right? And I think the, the issue is that when you look at the deep insidiousness, it was like a cancer eating at the foundation of the American base. I, I had, just to put this in perspective, I um, I had occasion to speak a couple of years ago to Admiral Mike Mullen. He was the former chairman of our Joint Chiefs of Staff. And I asked him, what were the great threats to America? And he said, our failure to deliver K through 12 education, fiscal irresponsibility, which is to say the national debt because it speaks to the core of your economic power and your competitive position in the world. If you're you're drowning in debt, it's gonna be very difficult to project power. Third, he said energy independence. And by that, he meant not just oil, but he meant fresh water and fertile soil, how do you feed the world, and what do you do when there's massive migration due to drought, and lastly, political dysfunction. So what I began to learn when we were on this journey was that there was a very deep correlation between the debt issue and political dysfunction. And the reality is is that there are many, many people in the political theater who know how to fix the problem. We know how to fix and stabilize Social Security for the long term. We know how to fix the healthcare issue, and and there's a lot of data around that. The nature of politics right now is highly ideological and it is more interested, the the political system is more interested in keeping these issues alive to attack the opposition than it is to solve the problem. It's more valuable as a political weapon than it is as a solution. And both sides would like the other side to take the heat. And so when you see the AARP sending thousands of postcards to old folks' homes in Florida in an election year saying, you're gonna throw grandma into the snow that is not conducive to having informed conversation about how do you fix Social Security. It becomes highly politicized. So what we found is that it was difficult to solve. We had a moment in time. Simpson-Bowles Commission had a fantastic effort. We brought a lot of uh, pressure to do it and it failed, and I would argue it failed for purely political reasons. At the end of the day, the conservative caucus that John Boehner was managing made it very difficult for him to make those compromises, and uh, President Obama at that time had so alienated the hard left by his commitment to try to reform entitlements that he. both sides ended up being caught by their worst extremes, and it killed the deal. So I watched that up close, and that is part of what led us to the Fix US effort, was we will never fix the debt if we do not fix our deeper pathology, which is just in, uh, like a viral infection, has taken over our political process.
1: Okay, thank you. Um, Trump administration, yes. you know, they made a promise to cut the debt, but you know, the debt has been steadily increasing. In fact, uh, it's, a, it's just a statistical fact.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, the OMB will tell you this. It has nothing to do with the Congressional Budget Office will tell you. So we have added, so as you, as you know, there's the debt, which is the large, huge, accumulated pile over many, many years, and then there's the deficit, which is the annual budget cycle. How mm-hmm. much are we in deficit each year when we go into a budget? Well, we've added 60%. 60% to the deficit has been legislated into existence in the last two years by a fully Republican Congress and a Republican White House. Now, I'm not a partisan. This is not a partisan attack, but it gives you an idea of how difficult this issue is because it, would be, it was very easy under the Obama years to say, well, it's all those spendthrift Democrats. They just want to spend all that money, and they don't care about saving money, and all us fiscal conservatives are the right guys, and so Donald Trump, as many Republicans have, ran on the fiscal conservatism of, we will fix this difficult problem, we'll be the responsible people, we will balance budgets. Well last time we had a balanced budget was under Bill Clinton, right? And that's quite a long time ago. In this last two years we have legislated and added 60 percent to the deficit. We're back to tracking at trillion dollar deficits. Now we haven't seen trillion dollar deficits since the worst of the financial recession. And the reason we had trillion dollar, in fact, it went as high as $1.4 trillion annual deficits because we were funding what Tim Geithner used to say, stacking the gold in the window to create confidence in a crisis of confidence where all the liquidity had crashed in the United States. So we now have a situation where we have a growing economy right? Mm -hmm. Things are doing well, but we're tracking trillion-dollar deficits a year. So what happens when it goes south again? And I don't think there's anybody in this room who believes that we're going to have perpetual economic growth into perpetuity and never have another recession. The problem is, what happens if that happens? If we're already a trillion-dollar deficit in a growth economy, what happens if this turns south?
1: Mm -hmm. Thank you. And U.S. owes China and Japan each over one trillion. Yes, that's correct. So in your opinion, uh, would such debt owed to foreign governments pose a strategic impact on the U.S.? That's
2: correct. So the, the way the narrative works is you've got what the left would call, and I mean, I don't mean this in a pejorative sense, but in the political spectrum of, of how you frame these issues, the left would argue that we have modern, uh, you know, monetary theory, that debt really doesn't matter. You should sort of spend until as long as you can. Interest rates are at historic lows, and they're going to stay that way for a while. In fact, we're all already into negative interest rates and all that stuff. So if that's the case, who really cares about the debt? We're the reserve currency of the world, so it will never matter because essentially we're only negotiating with ourselves. Mm -hmm. Well, right now, about 60% of the debt is held by the United States ourselves, so we, quote, owe it to ourselves, and about 40% is held overseas, and to your point, uh, Dr. Hu, uh, you've got about 10% of that is with China and about 10% of that is with Japan. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're China and you look at their strategy with their Global Infrastructure Investment Fund, so they're actively, because we have retreated from this market. We've built an active infrastructure investment fund in China that is now funding all of the stands. They're funding into Vietnam. They're funding infrastructure development in many, many places. But here's the catch. In many instances, they're making sure that those loans are repaid in yuan, not dollars. And the purpose of that strategically, to your point, Dr. Hu, is their objective long-term would be to reduce the vice grip that the United States has owned on having the dollar be the reserve currency of the world. So strategically, they're doing everything they can long-term to shift that so that the Yuan could be part of that, of that uh, matrix of, of reserve currencies. So in some ways, we're sort of living in this wishful thinking that, that we are completely unattackable, unimpeachable on this reserve currency. There are many economists that would argue that we don't argue from as strong a position of strength as we might have. When you think about that after World War II, we had 52% of the world's GDP. Well, we're about 23% now, right? And when you think about that as recently as 2007, our debt to GDP was 37%. It's now 78% and within 10 years, it's gonna be at 108%. And if we don't change any of our current law, we'll be at 200% in 50 years, 200% debt to GDP. And we're so how long are you the reserve currency of the world when your economy is vulnerable? So I would say that, if I was thinking in strategic terms, I don't think it's in the United States' strategic interest for all the reasons that Admiral Mullen pointed out to be so fiscally irresponsible that we put at risk the future of, of the entire experiment by virtue of putting ourselves in that much debt where you have no flexibility, no maneuverability, and God help us if we're ever not the reserve currency.
1: Mm-hmm. It kind of bring me to the next question. You kind of touched the, 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 the point a little bit. Uh, you know Paul Krugman? Yes. huh. Uh, a fiscally liberal economist, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and he argued that the U.S. government hasn't spent enough. That's right. Um, U.S. debt issue is not yet a crisis because U.S. economic growth rate is still higher than the interest rate we paid on the U.S. debt. Yep. So in your opinion, I guess you don't agree with him?
2: Well, so I would say that uh, we... (laughs) We live in a world of bumper sticker politics, right? If you, and so I would say that if, if it fits on a bumper sticker, it's probably not true. And so right now we live in a political narrative where we have got this sort of reductionist instinct where we've so deeply simplified these issues. Mm-hmm. So I would, it's not that I disagree with everything that Dr. Krugman, uh, who mm-hmm. is a Nobel laureate in trade policy, um, he for a long time has been a debt skeptic. And, and, mm-hmm. I, and I'm trying, this is a, a very capable person, and he buys ink by the barrel. So, I guess if I become a New York Times uh, writer, right. I, I can also be in his position someday. But, so Paul Berg- Bergman, uh you know, is a very articulate, thoughtful guy, whose basic thesis is that, if we're doing this well and interest rates are low, let's just keep spending, let's solve all our problems. Now, this grew out of a narrative that said, why would you argue for austerity why would you slam the brakes on economic possibility at a time when we really need stimulus? Now, if you can imagine under the Obama administration, an enormous amount of stimulus was put into the economy with the very deliberate intention of fortifying and backstopping and restoring confidence to a crisis in which was fundamentally a crisis of confidence in the entire system's ability. So there are many of us, including the business community and even the Republican or the Conservatives or whatever you want to call them, We're very much in favor of that because you had a crisis and you had to stop it. The point is, do you have a duty of care over time to reduce that obligation? Now, it's interesting, there's a very well-known scholar, and I'll get back to Mr. Krugman's point, but if you look at the history of the debt, it was bipartisan policy up until the 2000s to always pay down the debt. This goes back to the founding of the country. And after World War II, when the debt was 106% debt to GDP after Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, the first thing he did, bipartisan plan to pay down the debt. After guns and butter under Johnson, pay down the debt, right? We had Vietnam and we had the welfare state, but we paid down the debt. It wasn't until the 2000s when we began to actually fund programs like the drug bill without paying for them. And then we began Mm -hmm. to finance wars without paying for them. And so what happens is you get this very uh, unholy convergence of factors. You have wars that are unpaid for. You've got public policy that is unpaid for and no mechanism for paying for it. That's unprecedented. We've always had policies to do that. Remember, this is coming after the Clinton administration where we had a balanced budget, right? So we were actually reducing the debt. Then you add to that that you've got an aging population. So when Franklin Roosevelt built the social security program during World War, you know, around the, the 40s, the, you know, Social security kicked in at 65 years but the life expectancy in the United States was 63 years. Roosevelt was a pretty savvy politician. He didn't expect anybody to be alive to use this thing. Well, as we all know, actuarial tables, people are living well into their 90s, right? Anybody who's tried to buy long-term care insurance knows that those prices have gone up considerably because of longevity of life. So, you've got a shrinking population, you've got fewer people paying into the fund, and there've been all sorts of there're lots of ways to fix it and make it stable so that we save and protect we have a duty of care and moral obligation to our most vulnerable in our society to protect them. But we also have a moral obligation to do it with responsibility. My argument with Krugman is not that he's right or wrong or that he's a smart guy or a dumb guy. It's not that. Mm-hmm. He has a view, and the view is one that I don't share, which is that you can whistle past this graveyard and you get a free lunch. I don't think you get a free pass. I think this comes home. I mean, right now, 9% of our budget is interest. 9%. Just a couple years ago when I started doing this, it was three and a half, four 4% and right now is on a trajectory to being 12%. So even if we never paid back the debt, let's say Mr. Krugman's right, you don't have to worry about the debt, it's no big deal. You still gotta pay the interest unless you wanna default. And if you default, then you have, you're head of an economics department, I think you would, you would share the view that defaulting on the United States, if we defaulted would be a massive shock To the global economy. So it's highly reckless in in the extreme to think that we're going to do that. So as long as we're still paying, larger and larger percentages of our budget are going to interest, even if you never paid down the debt, the interest alone is displacing our national priorities. So should we be paying for education? Should we be paying for infrastructure? Should we be paying for R&D? Should we be paying for scientific innovation to make us competitive in the world? I think many of us would argue that that's where we'd be wanting to make our investments. We shouldn't be feeding this beast called the debt because we haven't had the the fiscal discipline to actually tackle the problems and have the honest conversation. We've turned it into a political football where all we do is attack each other. So Krugman Mm -hmm. is part of the political debate. I would rather see us get in a room in in the way that all of us would get in a room and solve a problem. Mm -hmm. When you live in this community, you don't run your school through an ideological prism. You don't, you know, you don't make your decisions in your town through an ideological prism. You don't not take your neighbor's kid to school because of ideology. And, you know, we compromise all to- Is anybody married in this room? Married? Anybody? Married? Have you ever compromised? I mean, just, right? So, I mean, so we've got a system that is completely paralyzed because you can't have the sort of true conversation and people don't compromise. And so I would invite Krugman. Mr. Krugman, Dr. Krugman, yeah. Nobel Prize laureate Krugman, uh, to come to the table and have that conversation. And in fact, it's very interesting, he did have recently a, a, a public uh, debate with Maya McGinnis, who runs our thing. And uh, I gotta say, Maya held her own. And, uh, you know, this is, I, I think it's great that we live in a country where this robust debate, but I would argue uh, Mr. Krugman is only one view. Okay.
1: Thank you. Um, I dug out one of your previous uh, interviews, actually happened in 2013, ah. with Washington Post. <laughs> uh, yeah. In the interview you said, uh, businesses tended to think of Washington as a necessary evil. Yeah. Um, someone once said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is that you know, um, good men do nothing. Yeah. So, as one of the good men, what is your message to our local business community yeah i you know i think that it
2: reminds me if anybody ever remembers the movie dr shivago dr shivago was a wonderful book it was written by boris pasternak who's also a poet but in that book he based and i'm paraphrasing he says our sin is our toleration so to sit and watch what we all know is sort of a wrong right how can we take our children's future and so mortgage it recklessly Uh, without any duty of care to that future, I think that it calls on all of us to stop for a moment and reflect on what our own role is. You know, I work very closely with uh, the cellist Yo-Yo Ma, and he just gave a speech. He was here in Youngstown recently uh, doing some work, but he was just in Denver today, and he said, look, you know, the United States is 250 years since the founders. And Yo-Yo's comment was, I've lived here for essentially a quarter of that time. How can you know this? How can you be part of this extraordinary experiment and not feel that you have to act, that you have to do your part? Well, the business was part of that. And you can't just go in and have all the benefits. Like I am exhibit A in the American dream. I grew up in Connecticut and Texas. I've worked underground in a mine to make money to pay for college. I've driven lumber trucks to make a living. I've waited tables. I worked at hardware stores loading cement. I worked at a gas station when I was 13 years old and I went to Georgetown University and became a government major and now I went on to build a Fortune 100 company. I am Exhibit A in the American dream. That's an extraordinary privilege. I've, had, I've built 186 offices in 56 countries, and I, I wouldn't trade that experience for the world. But to think that I did this because I'm some genius is insane. I did that because the American experiment allowed me to do that. It gave me the capacity to do that. And so we have a duty of care. I can't just sit there and buy a ranch in New Zealand and think it's not my problem, right? I mean, the very experiment that made me possible, I have a duty of care to protect and preserve and defend at all costs. And so we have to get out of the short-termism, which is this viral pathology which has infected our politics. Everything is short-term. You know, there's no long-term strategy in our political warning right now. And the business world is living quarter to quarter because you're thinking about the next month's earnings. And some hedge fund can come in and buy your stock and leverage you up and take cash short-term or do stock buybacks, all this stuff that's short-term. We are an integral part of the social experiment. Business has a duty of care to society. We are part of that fabric. We should be thinking about long-term stewardship of value of creation, not just short-termism. So for all those reasons, I have a very deep and passionate feeling that business should be at that table. We should be part of that solution. We should be leading. You don't get to just say, you know what, I'm a business guy. I got stuff to do and my board doesn't really care about the future of democracy or this great American experiment. I don't buy that for one minute. I don't buy that for one minute. I think we have a duty of care to lead on these issues, and we should be heard all over this country. And there's a good reason why people are cynical about business, because you're flying around. You know, Steve Schwartzman's got his airplane. He's flying around, and, you know, I'm losing my place in society. I thought if I waited patiently, I'd get my priest of the American dream. I've been working hard, and my wages are going down. I don't have a seat at the table, and these guys are doing better and better, and I don't see them involved. I, I get it. You know, the pitchforks are coming. So business had better wake up and be at the table. That's my very strong view. Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I'm from uh, YSU. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the main goals of this campaign is to raise awareness. Yes. And so what's your message to college students? Yeah. Gosh, so it's funny. I was
2: telling Dr. Who earlier. I did a, I did a presentation in uh, Denver a few years back in which I spoke to a graduate class of economic and accounting types and, uh, and an undergrad class. And it was fascinating because the undergrads, you know, there are 30 of them, and the professor was a, was a former retired accounting uh, guy who just was teaching as sort of an adjunct professor. And I walked in and I said, so here I am in my coat and tie, Mr. Corporate Dude, and uh, they're all sort of, you know, you've seen them, the undergrads sort of slouched down, wondering what I was doing there. So I, I asked if anybody had heard of Simpson-Bowles, Complete blank stare, no idea what I was talking about. But I asked if they'd heard about Occupy Wall Street. Oh, okay, they heard about that, right? And I said, so what was that about? You had all this frustration and angst and tense downtown, Boy, you, know, you, know, what, you upset these guys, right? You want to get those one percenters who are doing something evil to you. I'm not sure what it is, but so there was a lot of angst and I said, but man, what, what, you know, have you ever met a one percenter? They all kind of looked around at each other. I said, well, you have now. I am 1%. I'm the guy. Right here, you've met one. And half of you want to be me and half of you hate my guts. You don't know why, but that's it. Well, now I had their attention, right? And I said, and you people with your Twitter, you know, you can take down a government in Egypt on Twitter and you're not at this table on this conversation. This is your future. We've completely mortgaged your future. Why why aren't you at this table? Why aren't you voting? Why aren't you engaged in public policy? Why aren't you paying attention? Please come in. I need you at the table desperately I need you. And you know what? 15 of those kids came up afterwards and signed up and became active in our campaign and I'm very happy about that. And you don't have to raise $100 million and run for Senate or be a Supreme Court justice. You can do this in your community. And here's here's the great falsehood of this political process and the debt issue. Everybody says, you know what? All I hear on TV is a bunch of people screaming at the top of their lungs. They're asking me to pick a side in a fight I don't even understand. I don't recognize liberal, conservative, left, right, Democrat. I don't even know what these words mean anymore. I feel politically homeless. You don't see me. You don't hear me. You know nothing about my life. You send some van to interview me in my diner, and you think you know me. And people were just checked out. There was a fantastic study, and it does speak to students, that they looked at the youth, but there's a group called More in Common in New York, and they did a, a group on the sort of the tribal nature of politics. And it's amazing. What they basically, in summation, and there's some handouts, which Ben can show you, but you know what they found is that about eighty percent of the public is just exhausted they're just tired they're sick of reading the paper they're sick of the social media they're sick of the screaming and yelling they're sick of the fighting because they don't recognize it in their own lives right in your own life you have to solve things every day you're doing your job why the hell they won't do theirs and students understandably feel the same way when has anybody asked them to be engaged in anything so they're saying you know what I'm working on my STEM. We don't teach civ- citizenship anymore. We don't teach civics. We don't teach history. All those budgets have been cut, so they don't even know what the experiment was about. Shame on us. We own that, right? I mean, so you, whether it's business or us as citizens, we have to take ownership of that. And I am one of these incurably diseased optimists who believe that there's great hope. I think, you know, I think that youth can be engaged, but I completely understand why they're cynical about the process. So let's try to engage them.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Um, I think my time is up. Let's take some questions from the audience.
2: Please, questions.
0: You guys are all welcome to come up here to, the, uh, to ask a question. I want to ask this question. I have two questions, but I'll start with this one. What is the end game? So we're getting to, I, I got to imagine from an economic standpoint, Dr. Who. perhaps you have an answer to this too that at a certain point, we will uh, we'll reach a tipping point, right? Where if, we're, if in 10 years we're, I forget what the stat was, but 9% of, of our budget is now devoted to interest payments. I think that's what you said and before.
2: And it's gonna be 30 before long, yeah. Right,
0: and so at what point does that, do yeah. we enter a, a phase in which we can no longer catch up? And it's not, like, it's not like your email inbox where you can't catch up and you're just like, whatever, that's not my email anymore, I have a new email address. Um, <clears throat> It's, it's a little more uh, grave than that. So what, what's the end game?
2: So there's a couple of things. Un- I mean, and I say this with great trepidation, but I think many of you would agree. Uh, the nature of our political process right now is that if it is not a state of complete massive crisis, it's difficult to generate response, right? And the political process, by its nature, responds to incentives. So, in fact, when people say the political process is dysfunctional, it's actually a misnomer. It is functioning like a highly-tuned surgical instrument. It responds absolutely to the incentives. And right now, nobody pays attention to this issue, so they do not respond to it. So what happens is when there's a crisis, when the Social Security Trust Fund defaults in 2033, and everybody's Social Security from Paul Stebbins from Miami, Florida, and New York City, and grandma in that home in Florida, both have their Social Security payment dropped by 23% overnight because, by law, you cannot borrow to fund Social Security. We're using a reserve right now, and that is what is subsidizing Social Security payments. So when that crisis hits, maybe there'll be a response. But I would argue that's no way to run a railroad. So when does that tipping point come? The Medicare trust fund has already been in default. Shame on us. Everybody knows it needs to be fixed. Nobody wants to take the heat for fixing it. So I don't know where that magic tipping point is where confidence in the US reserve currency of the world begins to default and everybody says, I just don't care what the United States is doing anymore. Your economy isn't big enough to care and I'm gonna go do my reserve currency. I don't know when that is. I don't know when that moment is. But you know, psychology is a strange thing. Any of you who've ever been investors, you've always heard Warren Buffett talk about the strangeness, the strange psychology of the stock market. So a stock goes up or down 30%. And he would argue, is the underlying asset that you owned 24 hours ago literally 30% different I mean, is that land in Des Moines, 30%? No, it's probably not. It's emotion. So we live in a world of emotion, and perception is truth. And that's a very powerful thing. Right now, when the perception is it's the reserve currency, even if it's bad, it's not bad enough. But what if that were to change? What if that were to shift just a little bit? Look what happened a couple weeks ago in the Wall Street Journal. This is very obscure inside baseball. The repo market. This is the measure of how banks all trade with each other. You know a lot about this and I'm sure you teach it. The repo market was the first flare that went up during the financial crisis of 08. You couldn't roll your commercial paper because there was no liquidity in the system. And this is among institutions which just routinely do this without any question. And the minute there was doubt, confidence dries up, nobody can take the commercial paper, and then you have a real crisis. Well this just happened two weeks ago again. This is sounding awfully familiar. So I don't know when that tipping point is. I don't have a date in which, you know, I'm not, you know, whatever those, who's the futurist Do you to be able to, wrote Nostradamus, somebody who can tell you the future. I don't know that. But I, you know, I'm a pretty logical person, even for a government major out of Georgetown. If you keep doing this unimpeded, sooner or later that day of reckoning is gonna come. The question is how bad and what the consequences will be. I come from school that says I would rather have people intelligently solve these problems in advance of the crisis We just live in a system where that isn't how the system works right now. And we have the power to change that as citizens in this room. We have more agency than we think. Good evening. How are you?
1: Hi. Um, Can you tell me what the specific plan is to reduce the debt?
2: Yeah. So there's there's lots. Uh, So first you need to stabilize the trajectory. So let's not, the first phase of that very specific thing is let's not make it any worse. Let's like stop digging the hole. And right now, we have a whole series of policies that have just been put in place that are digging that hole. The tax, poli- the tax reform bill did that. There are other components of it. So I would say the first thing would be to stop digging the hole. The second thing is we need more to return to what we used to call in Congress pay-go, which means you pay as you go. Well that sort of magically got disappeared because it was in everybody's interest on both sides not to have to deal with that pesky thing about how you're going to pay for it. I would like to see PAYGO reinstituted. I would also like to see us go to a two-year budgeting cycle, not an annual budgeting cycle. We've been living on budget resolutions, not actual budgets, for years now, right? We just haven't used it. So we should re-implement and actually enforce our own rules, that would be good. Three, I think that the ways to fix Social Security are so well known by so many people, the only thing that prevents it from being stabilized is the politics of who's going to own that solution. I think that we should stop that immediately. And, there's, and the, and the, the health care stuff is quite complex because it involves lots of constituent players, but it's still outgrowing the pace of the economy, and we need to stabilize that growth while giving people more efficient, cost-effective health care, which we are not doing right now. I don't think there's anybody in this room who thinks our healthcare system is working very efficiently. So there are many very specific things, and then when you go line item by line item, what we're headed towards, which is the downside, is about 60% of the budget is mandatory spending. It's just automatic every year. You don't have any choice. Nobody passes any law. It's just by automatic thing. But that's escalating in its size. The second part of it is interest. You've got about 10%, 9%, 10% which is interest. So you've got another 30% which we call discretionary, which means you can still choose how to spend that money. As citizens, we can tell our representatives how to spend it. Half of that is defense. The other half is every other choice we make as a society. And the more that we avoid delaying these longer-term entitlement issues, the more that we lose our ability to choose our choices as a society for things like infrastructure, education, whatever. Then you get to things like interest rate. If interest rates start to move and the government is crowding out, it has a real impact on car loans, mortgages, student debt, this is real. It affects wages, it affects productivity, and that affects our competitiveness in the world. So there are many, many, many reasons why we should change it, and there's lots of specifics, but if you go talk to politicians about the politics of owning that decision-making, it's much more valuable to attack the other side, and I don't care whether it's Mitch McConnell attacking Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer attacking Mitch—it Mc- doesn't matter. They're all doing the same thing. There's nobody who's innocent in this, believe me. This isn't like there's some magic perfect person in politics right now. So I would say until we put more pressure on our politicians to solve it, we're going to have a problem. But the solutions are there, I can tell you. I know.
1: Uh, when do you think the three-letter word tax became a four-letter word?
2: <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. So I can tell you, Grover Norquist, may he rot in hell. So Grover Norquist is somebody I really don't like a lot. So during the time when we were in this fiscal crisis and we had the Simpson Bowls, the, the thing that absolutely paralyzed Washington was the Simpson Bowls, quote, grand bargain. All of this is ancient history, but I'll share it with you because it's instructive to your question. It was about two-thirds from spending reforms, and then you had about a third coming from tax restructuring. And by that, I'll be very specific. Lower all rates across the board, because that will attract capital to the United States for investment. It's a very sound policy. But in exchange for lowering those rates, we will abolish exemptions. And under the Simpson-Bowles plan, they had an idea called the Zero Plan and what it meant was all exemptions would automatically default to being disappeared and if you wanted one of those exemptions you had to sit in front of a congressional committee and you had to redefend it you had to redefend that exemption on tv for a youtube clip and let's i can tell you most people would not have shown up because for 40 years those exemptions which are about one they're about 25% of our budget goes out in the form of revenue that we should have had, but we give it back. So taxes became a four-letter word when Grover Norquist, in the wave of the Tea Party in 2010, told everybody, sign the pledge, no new taxes, which meant you had taken a pledge. Now, when the hell does Grover Norquist get to change our Constitution and make right. congressmen get pledges right. against taxes? I mean, yeah. this is absurd. But that's what happened politically. The reality was you could not go home and say, well, I raise taxes, when in fact we desperately needed to restructure the whole tax, make it much more competitive. So we've never gotten around to that. That plan is still sitting, and that was a bipartisan plan. Max Baucus, Dave Camp, who was a Republican, Max Baucus, a, 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 a Democrat, there was a lot of bipartisan effort to reform taxes. They spent three years on it, and it's still sitting on a shelf, more or less. So yes, it shouldn't be a four-letter bird. It should be, as responsible adults, let's decide how we use those taxes. And if we need to raise them to cover the things we want, then let's do that too. But don't lie about it and borrow and then never tell anybody.
1: Yeah. Um, I'll give my opinion here. <laughs> Great. Come on. Let's <laughs> that, go. Uh, I think you're exactly right about Grover, but that was the grown-up. I think the embryo started in about 1968. That's Maybe. just my opinion. I'm old and I've paid attention. And Vietnam and then Guns entitlements. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. Then the the... Uh, people, the opinion, everybody, and, the, and taxes was used to, um, I guess, enact those opinions, activate those opinions.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I should, yeah. look, there is, there's great history. Yeah. I'm giving oh, right. you the current you know, no, state but you're, of the war.
0: Where it was, yeah, it I mean, was we could talked trace, about. You
2: could go yeah. all the way back to when we actually introduced an income tax. I mean, that's been controversial right. since the very beginning. Right. All I'm yeah. suggesting is that in the modern day issue that we're correct. talking about now, right. that yes. was ground zero because it absolutely lit everybody's hair on fire and it made it possible, and two things happened. So Saxby Chambis, who is a conservative senator from Georgia, stood on the floor of the Senate and said, it is irresponsible for us to not address tax policy. And he was told to shut up by the leadership. Saxby is now retired, he's done with it, he went home. Ken Conrad, Dick Durbin on the spending side, stood on the floor of the Senate, tremendously courageous and said the Democrats have a duty of care, a moral obligation to be the thought leaders on reforming and making stable entitlements. Don't leave it to Ted Cruz. We should be leading that conversation, but they don't have the courage to do it. He also got muzzled by Harry Reid for saying that on the floor of the Senate. So you've got a system that, again, is more interested in keeping the fight alive than solving those problems. Right. So, now that I've beaten you into mute, more questions, please. Yes, thank you. Oh, she's back! Yay! Okay.
1: Thank you. So Paul Krugman writes a lot about inequality. Can you sure. can you summarize Krugman's position on inequality, and then tell us your position on how inequality has an impact on the national debt?
2: Yeah. So um, I will not I will not attempt to summarize uh, Paul Krugman's position on inequality. Uh, he has. Uh, I, would, I would refer you to the New York Times and you can read pages and pages and pages about his view. Um, so what do I think about inequality? I think it is uh, probably the most profound crisis of our moment socially. You've had massive globalization, massive displacement of change in jobs. It's created a lot of fear and uncertainty in many communities. We're sitting in one right here. That is very much uh, a reality of that. Uh, to pretend that it doesn't exist is madness. And if you've got uh, a hollowed out middle class, people are losing ground on wages, you've got a, a, a higher income that has got capital and has continuing to make more capital, I have no problem with Bill Gates making lots of money and giving it away any way he wants. What I really have a problem with is that we have not done our duty of care, this is back to the long term, short term, Business can't just say, look, I have to compete in a global market and be a global company and we have to be a globalized world economy. It's okay to do that, but not if you do not make some account for what it's going to mean to our own society and the consequences of that. You don't get to just pretend that didn't exist. So if the West Virginia coal miner is we're not going to do coal anymore because we want to lower our carbon footprint and we want to go to other forms of energy and we want to be global then we have a duty of care to retrain that population and give them access to the same promise of a future that we have. If we don't address that well, then I think we've done an enormous disservice to our society. So inequality is a moral issue, it's a profound issue, and it's not just an economic one. It's not Paul Stevens versus Krugman. And it's not just business versus the other guys. It's much more complicated because it speaks to our social values. It speaks to the long-term viability of the experiment. It speaks to the future of our children. It's the future of work. It's AI, artificial intelligence, the wonders of technology for the changing world, but the threats and the difference is the pace of change is much faster. It's much faster. So we have, I think, I feel very strongly that we should be talking in great depth about that. I think we should get out of this short-termism which is the pathology which has infected our business community, it's infected our politics, it's infected our social media, it's affected our attention spans. We can't get off those damn devices, right? There's a woman I heard two years ago out in Colorado talking about learned autism. We're also short term now, we're learning autism. We don't even communicate anymore. We don't have conversations, we don't have discussion. Anyway, I would say it's many, many aspects of society. It's inequality. is, <coughs> economic inequality is in addition to many other forms of inequality, learning, knowledge, access, opportunity. It's not just the economic. But so I feel very strongly that we should be addressing that and, and it's completely unconscionable if we don't.
0: That's, that's my opinion. Can I, can I just follow up on that for a second though? Yeah. What kind of impact does social and economic, socioeconomic inequality as it is experienced in America today have on the debt? It seems that if we had less inequality there would be more revenue, more tax revenue generated. Correct? Discuss.
2: I couldn't agree more. I don't have much to add. The whole idea is if we are thinking holistically about our economy and the American experiment, this very fragile, amazing thing that we've had for a couple of hundred years and we are busy screwing up to a fairly well, uh, which seems very sad to me, because I have lived all over the world and believe me, I I I don't think we could have the current Chinese system run America. You know, I don't think, I don't want, I don't want Erdogan of Turkey running America. I don't want the guy running Hungary to have America. So I think uh, we're sort of at a moment in time where you're right. By including people back into this economy and making a place for them, you make a far more productive, stable society. You've got a future for our kids. It's, it brings back a more robust social fabric. You know, there's a deep relationship between, you know, look, we can teach all the STEM we want. Science, technology, engineering, math—is great. But if we're not teaching citizenship and empathy, and care, and telling the stories of this great country, and our shared cultural imperative, there comes with that a duty of care, and I don't think we have that conversation. So it's not just the economic part, the richness of society is partly economic, but it's all the other things that made this experiment great. So I see them as integrated, and the sooner we get to it, the better. Anyway, that's my own, I feel like Dennis Miller now, but that's just my opinion. Uh, Recently, within the last couple of weeks, there is a, uh, thinking about the new business uh, uh, some business leaders yes. huh? nationally who have said we've got to start caring about the community uh, short termism which you've talked about not 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 the emphasis on shareholders profits Correct. but instead uh, the commitment to workers and to others I was particularly interested in that both because of what you said but also because it I remember being shocked when people didn't want VP to have to pay for their oil spill because that would cut shareholders' profits. So, I mean, the... The BP thing, I, I, don't, I don't know enough about the detail of it, uh, to, but I, I, I know the Business Roundtable one extremely well. I was a member of the Business Roundtable. My longtime partner since I was 25 years old, who's the chairman and CEO of the company that I was chairman and CEO of, is a member of the Business Roundtable, and he's a signatory of those principles. So my first remark is, and I don't mean to sound like a cynic, but it's taken an awfully long time for that organization to give what I think is a complete statement of the obvious. Like, like why is this news? Like, when did, when did this not become the fundamental duty of care of business, right? When did all of a sudden, you know, when did shareholder agency, you know, be, I mean, so if a hedge fund comes in and, and does a hostile to my board and wants to leverage my balance sheet, take all the cash, they, ha- they can sell the stock anytime they want with impunity. I actually have to run the enterprise. I have to train employees. I have to make them useful citizens. I want them to be healthy. I want their kids to be healthy. I want their families to be healthy. I want the community to be healthy because that's ultimately my marketplace. And by the way, the very existence of my company is a beneficiary of this great experiment. So who on earth thought it was like right to think that shareholder values, particularly ones who have no skin in the game, they can sell their stock anytime they want, that we should be chasing that rabbit as the imperative for business. That's complete utter nonsense in my view. So the business roundtable, I can just tell you, and these are not evil people, these are very pragmatic, many of them extremely capable people running very complex organizations. Historically their view has been saying, look, you know, I report to a board, the board is interested in the success of the enterprise. It's it's never been our, our remit To be sort of wandering around in the future of democracy or what makes it better. But I think that under Jamie Dimon's leadership from JP Morgan, they have made that case. And I think that, uh, I think there are exemplars, in my opinion, of that. I would say Doug McMillan at Walmart is somebody who has done more to change the face of the way the corporate relationship should be in community and the world. They're one of the most environmentally progressive companies in the world and they did it years before anybody else did it. They're doing lots of changes, despite what you read in newspapers. I know for a fact they're doing lots of changes on wage, training, all that stuff. So there are leaders that have really understood, it is in, it's in, our forget about moral, it's in our pure business interest to behave as if we were stewards of a long-term society of which everybody should be a stakeholder. That's good business. It's not good business to be short-term, run everything as a cost-cutting mechanism, and think about the next quarter's results. If we do that, we're not gonna do it. I've heard Doug McMillan publicly state to shareholder environments, saying, I'm gonna give you a lower return on capital to make these investments for the long-term. That's considered like heresy in the business world, but they're signing up to those principles now. I think it's great. I would love to now see them speak more eloquently about why business should be at the table in defending our democracy. A Republic
1: sure hi hey. hey so I'm gonna ask kind of a naive question you've talked about and I get right how polarization on the issue of spending is a political advantage and I get who benefits from that on
2: each side economically who benefits from that polarization well, uh, <laughs> right off the bat, I would say that one of the strongest beneficiaries is the media revenue model. Because it's, you know, Jerry Springer sells, William Buckley does not. So McNeil, Lair's gone, and, you know, warfare sells. So, you know, the head of the former head of Munzee, whatever the heck that guy's name was at CBS, flat out said, look, this, Trump made more money for us than any single... Fun- it, you know, they're much more interested in the fight than they are in the solution. So we're all part of that... Uh, problem. But polarization is more complex, in the sense that John Haidt, I highly recommend anybody in this room who wants to learn about this polarization, the tribalism that has begun to infect our country, a guy named Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, wrote a book called The Righteous Mind. It is a brilliant piece of work. And Jonathan Haidt was the first guy that for me as a business guy, a pragmatic person, I thought all this problem around polarization was if I fix the engineering we would solve the problem if we fix the open primaries five to six percent of eligible voters show up in the primaries and they're the true believers and they're highly ideological most people are not engaged they send true believers to a gerrymandered district which is safe and it's been made safe over many years when i worked in congress as an intern there are a hundred competitive districts there are twelve left so all you have to do is win the primary. So I used to think, let's just fix the engineering and we'll send fewer nuts to Congress, right? We'll have more responsible leadership. But it's deeper than that. And Jonathan Haidt was the one who said, though, so think about it in terms of traditional values. If we hear the word progressivism in its traditional value system, it meant pluralism, generosity, inclusion. But in its most illiberal form, in its most illiberal form, it's the limousine liberal lecturing you on bathrooms in North Carolina and shaming you if you don't agree. Okay, well, that's, that makes people uneasy, right? So they're not sure what to do with that. Social conservatism, family values, community, the Reagan revolution, morning in America, blah, but if that turns into Grover Norquist lecturing you on Planned Parenthood or tax policy, that feels a little illiberal. It's very judgmental. Look at, look at libertarianism. Edmund Burke, you know, Adam Smith, moral sentiments, was a brilliant essay. Or, or Alexis de Tocqueville, liberty in America. Even Frederick Douglass you know, I'll work with anybody to do right. But if that turns into Americans for Prosperity, pounding down every door saying, take them out, beat them, kill, okay, that's highly illiberal. Or the authoritarian, which used to mean, you know, justice, community, police, but if that turns into nationalism, and racism. So if these illiberal instincts take over the value systems, it leaves a huge hollowed out center where most of us feel confused, homeless, and we don't identify with any of those. That's when you retreat to your tribe, because you don't know what to do. The institutions that I used to believe in, justice, business, government, are all not functional. Well, what does it leave me? I got nowhere else to go, so I'm just gonna retreat and disengage. There's the fundamental value structure of, but what I find as I travel around the country, whether it's, I mean, I've been in Northern Illinois where I hate Obama, and I've been in Southern California where the teacher, I love Obama, and I've been in, you know, I've been, Brownsville, Texas, I've been all over this country. And it's interesting, the nomenclature is the same regardless of political affiliation. What happened to my country? Who took it? I want to come home, right? I don't believe in any of this fight. I certainly, nobody asked me, you know, right? You don't know anything about my life. And I got to do my job. Why the hell won't you do yours? That's a deeper issue around polarization. Because when I go out in these communities, people don't hate their neighbors. But if you listen to Fox and CNN, you would think that everybody had a machine gun ready to kill their next door neighbor when they asked them to take their kids to school. You and I both know that's, I won't use the word, it's not true, <laughs> okay? <laughs> it's not true, it has something to do with cattle, but it's not true, it's just not true. Most people don't live their lives that way. So I would say we're back to Boris Pasternak, our sin is our toleration. If this is what passes for public discourse and we've got a bunch of talking heads telling us what the debate is that I don't recognize my community, we should stop it. We have more agency. It's like the Wizard of Oz. Remember the Wizard of Oz? Some guy behind the curtain? I I would argue that we're like Dorothy with the ruby slippers. You can go home anytime you want. The heart, the brain, and the courage is not gonna come from Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi. It's gonna come from our communities, us in this room, all over this country, saying, I'm done, please stop with the ideological nonsense, please solve some problems, and restore some confidence in my country again. Please do your damn job, now. Like, I'm tired of it, because you're jeopardizing my children's future to say nothing of my own. Anyway, that's me.
1: I just have one more, if I may. Um, You've touched on some environmental issues and yes. policy. Can you talk about how climate change will be a multiplier for the debt and deficit?
2: I'm sorry, multiplier how, for
1: what? How will climate change be a multiplier for the debt and deficit, for these issues oh that you're gosh. concerned yeah. about?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, so <laughs> it, it's sort of like, uh, you know, what is the cost of not being responsible? We, we are building up, this is like a, you know, this is another form of debt that's coming. It's just in a different form. So when Admiral Mullen talks about those four things, and he talks about energy independence, and he doesn't mean oil. He's talking about food, fertile soil, and fresh water. Imagine if you have hundreds of millions of people in mass migration because of potable water shortages and what that would do to our national security. Just contemplate that for a moment. And the fact that we aren't willing to have non-ideological, fact-based conversations about the things that we can do. I mean, it's interesting, you talk to the guys at Google about the future of cars and all this you know, independent drive. So think about your average vehicle. It's over-engineered about 3,000%. You know, you, The truck takes the boat in and out of the lake once a year. It sits in a garage at night and it sits in a work parking lot during the day. I mean, it's so 98% is, I mean, if you go through the real calculus of what we pay for all of the cost of, of the larger environmental footprint, it's huge. And we haven't paid that price yet. And as consumers, we're not willing to yet. But I would argue you're just running up a bill that's going to come back one way or the other. I would prefer it not be a national security crisis. But you know, let's, let's <laughs> we got a lot of problems. That's one of them for sure. Anyway, I, okay. I got the hook.
0: I'm out. All
2: right. Stebbins so,
0: out. Mic drop. So I want to thank Paul Stebbins of Fix the Debt and Dr. Ohu of Youngstown State University. The City Club of the Mahoning Valley is supported by Bank of America, the Nordson Corporation Foundation, the Raymond John Ween Foundation, Youngstown Foundation, and Arnett Family Fund, which is part of the Community Foundation of the Mahoning Valley, Youngstown State University, and WYSU 88.5 FM, your valley public radio station. Next week on the 23rd, we will be in Warren, Ohio with a program about complete streets and the transit paradox. That's going to be at Christ Episcopal Church at 7 p.m. Please join us for that. Tim Francisco, any other announcements I should make? Uh, November, 22nd, Stephen November 22nd, Stephen Greenhouse on the labor movement. Uh, so Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for being a part of this forum. Thanks to our panelists. Give them a round of applause, please. And many, many thanks to our hosts here at Susie's Dogs and Drafts. This has been the City Club of the Mahoning Valley. Our forum is adjourned. Thank you so much.